Hi, everybody. I'm Brian Norcross, and this is podcast number five of 2019 here along with Luke Doris. Rapid fire. We'll get you two of them this week. Two this week, yes. We're, we're doing two this week because we have a special guest for you today. And then we're going to talk about what our next podcast is uh, in just a moment because it's going to be uh, a big one. But today we're going to talk with Jared Moskowitz, who's the director of the Florida Division of Emergency Management. Jared was appointed by Governor Ron DeSantis. He's been there since the beginning of the year. We'll talk to him about Hurricane Michael and the issues that the entire state of Florida encounters whenever a hurricane threatens. And we'll talk to uh, Director Moskowitz here in just a moment. We're recording this on Wednesday, July 24, 2019. If you're listening at some point in the future, you've got to tune in to Local 10 here in South Florida or check Local10.com, the Max Tracker app, or the Local 10 weather app for any current information. And be on the lookout for the Brian Norcross Talks Tropics newsletter. You'll be able to sign up for the newsletter and have it mailed, emailed to you. So uh, I write up what's going on in the tropics, uh, what I think is a, of a special note to South Florida. To get that, you can go to local10.com, click on weather, and scroll all the way to the bottom of the page, put in your email, and you'll get the Talks Tropics email. Uh, whenever something is happening. And if you're thinking you just heard from us, as, as we said, this is our second one this week. Uh, yesterday we talked to Dr. Dr. Jack Bevan, uh, and that was a great conversation uh, about Hurricane Michael and the report that upgraded it to a Category 5. Well, we're recording uh, two podcasts this week. We will not have one next week, the last week of July, but we'll be back on August 5th with Dr. Phil Klotzbach. And uh, as I'm sure anybody that knows hurricanes knows, uh, Dr. Klotzbach is the one who puts out the Colorado State University updated seasonal hurricane forecast, and it will come out that day. So that morning it'll be issued, and then uh, that uh, later that day uh, Phil and uh, Luke and I will talk about it. And the question is whether he's going to bump up the prediction slightly for this year. If you had to take a hunch, would you say maybe because of the changes with the El Nino? Yes, uh, I, I, that would be my guess, but it's, it's uh, questionable, which is worth talking about just for a second. Because, you know, we talk about El Nino and we look in the Pacific and we say, how warm is the water in this box in the center of the Pacific Ocean. And generally, that's what people think of as being El Nino. So when you see the reports that the El Nino is waning, that's what they're talking about, is that the water in that box is becoming less warm. It's still warmer than normal, but uh, closer to normal is the thing. But El Nino is really an atmospheric phenomena that affects weather patterns all over the world. And that phenomena is measured in other ways as well, including something called the SOI or the... the uh, uh, Southern Oscillation Index? Yes, thank you. Southern Oscillation... I was stuck on Indian because I was going to talk about the Indian Ocean in a second. Southern Oscillation Index, which is related to the pressure, right, between Africa, or between Australia, Darwin, Australia, and Tahiti. And then there's another one called the Indian Ocean Index or the Dipole Mode Index. And that's related to the water temperature in the Indian Ocean, one side and the other. And both of those measurements also change with the phenomena of El Nino. And those measurements aren't showing 
the lessening as much as the uh, as the water temperature in the middle of the, of the Pacific. Yeah, it's interesting because the the one that gar- you know garners all the headlines is the water temperature. But what really matters is how the atmosphere responds to that. And if the atmosphere is still in a, an El Nino-like state, then the, the water temperatures, do they matter as much? Maybe, maybe there's something funky Right. Well, happening. the thing is that it's, it's much more complex than just the water in the box. The water in the box in the Pacific is a proxy for mm-hmm. El Nino, as is the SOI, is as it? is the IOD. Now, there's, there's a reason for it that they go hand in hand, right? Because I think this is what you were just going to say. <laughs> With ENSO. Is what, I was, what right. we were always taught was ENSO and how that, that is the combined. But El Nino was always just the temperature of the water at uh, the 3.4 region in the Pacific. Is, is that not right? Yes, but, but that is a proxy for an El Nino atmosphere. And generally, when you have an El Nino condition in the atmosphere, that water is warm in that box for very good physical reasons. The water is warm in the tropical Pacific. That makes the air rise there. That uh-huh. creates more air in the atmosphere that ends up being wind over the Atlantic, which ends up making more wind shear, which makes fewer hurricanes in the Atlantic. Mm. But... The, the warm air can be in different parts of the Pacific, and, and it's not always 100% related to that box. And one of the artifacts of an El Nino is wind shear in the Caribbean, and wind shear in the Caribbean this year has been very high. So we'll see. I mean, we'll see. Uh, Phil Klotzbach is, you know, he analyzes all this stuff for his life. So my point is putting in a plug for our next podcast on the 5th of August, and we'll talk to Phil about his analysis uh, of all that. All right, let's bring in Jared Moskowitz, the Emergency Management Director for the state of Florida. Hi, Jared. Welcome to the podcast. Great to have you on. Hey, Brian. How you doing? Hey, I know you're a South Florida guy from Coral Springs, and it says on the Internet that you went to Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. That's right? That's true. That, that is not fake news. Uh, great. Okay. And uh, then to law school, you became a legislator in the Florida House of Representatives. Then the new governor appointed you to run the state of Florida uh, Division of Emergency Management, which is... A fantastic group. I spent a lot of time there in Tallahassee at that uh, at that facility. It's just uh, been a few years ago now. Time flies. All right, you've been at it about six months, and and what are your impressions? Where do we stand as a state uh, being ready for a hurricane? Obviously, that's the most likely kind of a large disaster we might have here. That where your uh, people would uh, kick in and and have a lot to do, uh, considering of course that Florida sticks out in Hurricane Alley, kind of like a sore thumb. Yeah, I mean, we're in good shape, Brian. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, there are things that you're constantly trying to improve on, and that's what we're doing at the division. We've been doing that uh, since day one, things that you're, you're always tinkering with to try to improve. It's, you know, kind of in a, a status of always, you know, making you, yourself more, you know, more perfect, trying to get to that, that point. I mean, I would say, you know, recently we've been tested and seen how the system performs in both Irma and in Michael. And so, you know, obviously there are things that worked well, and you want to repeat those things. And then, you know, through your after-action reviews, there are things that, you know, maybe didn't work as well as you would have thought uh, or they performed differently. And so those are the things that you then attack uh, and you try to fix. And so, you know, we've been doing that, you know, since day one in January when I came into the division, and we've been looking at all sorts of different areas. And, you know, one in particular, let's say, is logistics. We're trying to get much better, you know, at logistics, being able to deliver things faster uh, into the area. We're, uh, you know, a smaller agency. Uh, We're built for speed. And so we're trying to enhance that capability through enhancing our logistics operation. So what kind of things are you talking about uh, trying to get into the area? You're saying, for instance, getting relief of some kind into Panama City more quickly, for example? 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, one of the things that you can do with a hurricane, other than a different from a no-notice event, is you can plan. And because you have that time to plan, that is the time to be ordering and running logistical support that you know is going to be needed. And pre-placing that in the field uh, in advance will shorten the times that we can respond. And, and that's something that, you know, we've been improving upon uh, since Michael's. You know, really fine-tuning our ability to deliver services earlier and having them closer to the locations that are going to need them rather than marshalling them from further away. You know, additionally, you know, we've been working on the recovery side of things as well, which is getting those federal dollars and state dollars down to the local governments uh, in the immediate aftermath and, and shortly thereafter, because obviously, you know, a lot of local governments spend their own dollars. Some of them exhaust their funds because lately these disasters are larger than some of their budgets. And so getting those dollars down to make sure you're not impeding the response short-term and long-term is extremely important. Uh, Jared, I think you just hit on this, but just to zero in on it a little bit, I was in Panama City and Mexico Beach just a few months ago, and many people still seriously hurting. Does the state manage the recovery from a disaster of that magnitude, or is it FEMA, essentially the federal government, or is it local people? And also, where does the Michael recovery stand? Sure. So all disasters are managed locally. Uh, They're locally managed, state-supported. And so, you know, we help support, uh, we help coordinate, uh, we can fill some gaps, but ultimately it's all managed at the local level. Uh, and, you know, FEMA obviously com- comes in and has a tremendous amount of support effort, both dollars and logistical support. Uh, and they're a huge tool in the toolbox. Uh, couldn't do it, obviously, without our federal partners. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's all, it's all locally managed. You know, where we stand in Hurricane Michael is, you know, we've been able to push down over $200 million uh, kind of in advance rather than through your typical reimbursement process. And the reason why that's important is you're dealing with a Category 5 storm, only the fourth one to ever hit the continental United States. You know, first one, the 1935 Labor Day hurricane, Hurricane Camille, Hurricane Andrew, and now Hurricane Michael. Uh, everybody, you know, knew this was a Cat 5 storm, you know, even before uh, they upgraded the rating. Uh, and so, you know, we're in a much better position now, obviously, than we were uh, in January. Uh, you're starting to see uh, the recovery. But obviously, uh, this is a long-term recovery process for the panhandle. Homestead did not recover in 9, 10, 11 months after Hurricane Andrew. It took years. Years, and yes. It, it, and it's going to take years in the panhandle. Making sure the folks on the ground in the panhandle, our, 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 our local governments, our citizens, making sure they have the resources at their disposal so that they can help utilize those things to help recover faster. That's our job uh, at this point in time. It's giving them the tools to do so. In some sense, as a state, we were lucky that Michael's worst winds hit an area that isn't super densely populated, although people in Mexico Beach and Panama City, I'm sure, wouldn't consider themselves lucky. But clearly, responding to even you know the relatively lightly populated area exceeded the local area's system to take care of people in the short term. I mean, we've, we've seen people living in tents for months and months and, and, and so forth, as you know. So, But what would happen? I mean, to think folks that live in South Florida and live in the densely populated west coast of Florida, uh, you know, are thinking, what would happen if if something really terrible happened in one of these incredibly densely populated 
places. Would the response be different, do you think? Or, or obviously local areas would have more resources, but but uh, it seems daunting. Yeah, I mean, listen, uh, we just ran a hurricane exercise, which was, you know, a fake Hurricane Smith, you know, and that was a Category 5 storm coming into the Tampa area. You know, I could tell you that it doesn't have to be a Category 5 storm. A Category 3 storm coming into the Tampa area uh, would be a significant water, uh, not just wind, but a significant right. water event. Every storm is different. You know, obviously, if, if Hurricane Michael had happened in a more densely populated area, uh, you'd have a different level of disaster. But, but what we had in the panhandle was, unfortunately, a perfect, uh, perfect storm. You had a Category 5 storm coming into one of the poorest areas of the state. Uh, and that presented different challenges uh, that, you know, in a lot of ways, perhaps not enough thought had gone into uh, that you know you got these local governments, cities that have a three and a half million dollar budget, counties that have an eight or nine million dollar budget, yet they might have fifty million dollars plus of disaster recovery cost. How are they going to pay for it? And obviously the state then responded. The state came in and and absorbed a lot of the fiscally constrained counties to lay out those dollars. You know, doing that in advance rather than in response is where you do have the improvement. Knowing going into the event where the help is going to be needed, uh, you know, in advance and planning for that, that's where the improvement can be. And I will tell you, this is not just an issue that was discovered in Michael. This is going to be an issue that exists not just in Florida but in other places, whereas events start to become larger and the, expense, and the amount of expense that has to be laid out at the local level. You're going to have the need for the federal government and the state government to come in and help out some of these more rural or areas that might be more urban but are fiscally constrained and don't have the resources to respond on their own. South Florida has a long, rich history of significant hurricanes, including two Category 5s. You mentioned them earlier, Michael and Andrew. Uh, in the overall scheme of things, though, Hurricane Irma, thinking back to 2017, it wasn't near the top of the end of the scale, except in a small part of the Keys where it was terrible, but essentially it was about a half a hurricane. But Big Pine and Cudjo, they got it really bad there. But people still talk about the evacuation and the gas issues, which makes everybody nervous about next time. So how have things changed since Irma? Well, so obviously, you know, Irma was a once-in-a-lifetime storm. You don't ever want to be a general fighting the last war. Uh, but what you do want to do is you want to see, again, what worked and what didn't work and improve upon it. You know, obviously, you know, when it comes to evacuations, we've got to make sure that we're not putting more people on the road than need to be there, because that's extremely important. Okay, uh, And so, you know, what happened in Irma has been analyzed, uh, uh, you know, what was done right, what could be done differently. And I think you'll see different decisions be made as far as who needs to be on the road evacuating. Obviously, it's difficult when it, you don't really know where the storm's going to be and you have a storm the size of Irma, which, you know, ultimately we got over 40 counties declared, uh, which has never happened before uh, in a hurricane. Uh, and so, you know, that, that, that's one piece of it. You know, as far as the gas issues, again, logistical support and working on the logistics of that and working with our corporate partners as well, you know, I don't expect to see the same sort of gas issues that we saw in the past. Remember, with Irma, you can't say Irma without saying Harvey, and you can't say Irma without saying Maria. These three events happened so close to each other, and they were so monumental for Texas, Puerto Rico, and Florida that it put a strain on all national resources. Uh, and so it was, in, in that 
situation. It really was a crisis, uh, the fact that all three of these events happened simultaneously, and if each one affected the response in another area. You're talking about the federal response especially, right, in terms of federal resources, as, as amazing just, as no, FEMA not is. Just, Brian, <laughs> not even just the federal response. I would say the state response and the local response. Because at the end of the day, you know, to deliver resources, there are all sorts of contracts. Well, you know, if contractors' resources are tapped out, because, you know, there's the federal government, the state government, the local governments, they don't have enough equipment. Oh, like the cleanup uh, process, which we did hear all about. The, that, 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 that's right. exactly right. Yeah. But it's not even just a cleanup process. It goes through the whole gambit, which is, you know, when you have these three events happening in such a short period of time, so close to each other, covering such a large mm-hmm. landmass, you know, big portions of Texas, big portions of Florida, and a whole, a whole island, and the response is happening literally within weeks of each other. Uh, it strains the resources that exist. And, and you have to look at that. What are the lessons learned? What can be improved? But also not think to yourself, the next storm we have, we're also going to have these other events happening simultaneously. Because if you just plan for that occasion every single solitary time, then you might not respond correctly. With Michael, right, Michael was a Category 5 storm, but and it hit a smaller area, less counties impacted. But the devastation was complete. Yeah. Where with Irma, off the charts. Off the charts. Irma didn't cause that level of devastation, right. but it affected more areas. But don't you think in Irma, one of the things that really affected the evacuation, and I just, I don't know, we can talk about uh, you know trying to control the evacuation, but when you have a storm that for days is a Category 5 and it's talked about, being, you know, the strongest storm in this part of the ocean, uh, which Irma was, and, you know, it uh, dominates the coverage and dominates people's thinking, uh, trying to keep people in South Florida that have been through quite a few hurricanes and vividly remember the hell after Hurricane Andrew of being stuck without power and in horrible situations. Uh, you know, it's, it's very, very hard to keep people that have the means from getting on the road, uh, regardless of the instructions of, you know, let the people near the beaches go first or whatever kind of uh, phased idea that would be ideal. I, I just, uh, you know, you're a South Florida guy. You know, you know how, how folks think and what their experience is here. Uh, don't you think that that, that is, is a bit of wishful thinking? Well, it's not that it's wishful thinking. Obviously, if people want to self-evacuate on their own, regardless of whatever the watches or warnings or recommendations are, they can always do that. Right, and that and that's going to happen, and we have to factor that into our planning. But when we issue mandatory evacuations for places, we got to make sure that we believe they are indeed mandatory, mm. and that we're issuing them at the proper time. Now, obviously, you don't want to be telling people to evacuate too late when they don't have the ability to do so. You also have to factor in areas that you know people would like to evacuate, but they might not have a car. They might depend on public transportation. Uh, and you, you, you might have people who want to evacuate, but, you know, they have special needs or they're elderly. You have to take that into account. Or they might have an animal. Where are they going to go to a pet-friendly shelter? You have to take that into account. So these are all the things that we're, we are constantly looking at to make sure that we, you know, provide the best recommendations and make the, make the correct decisions. You know, Irma, again, was, I think, a one-off sort of deal where, as you talk about, you have this huge, massive Category 5 storm, you know, coming towards Florida. You know, the exact track is really not known. Is it going to come up the whole spine of the state of Florida, which has never happened before? And so there's no doubt that nobody wanted to be late in the evacuations, Mm -hmm. all right? 
Uh, but you know, simultaneously, I think we need to look at what it looks like when you put six million plus people on the road. And was that how, how do we do that better? If we have to do that again, Brian, how do we do that better? How do we help with with flow of traffic? Does should the highway run in only one way? Because right. let's be honest, when you got a storm coming up the spine of Florida, the only way to get out of Florida is north. There is no east to west evacuation. Okay. Although a lot of people um, left South Florida, Southeast Florida, and went to Southwest Florida or the Tampa area, and we we uh, probably need to keep those kinds of ideas in mind, you know, and just help people uh, know what their options are and try and discourage something like that. Yeah, and of course, and you have to look at the event. In Hurricane Michael, you literally, it, depending upon where your location was, you might have only had to drive one county, and you were out of the way. Right. So Irma was different because of the size of the storm. Yeah, and of so, course, it's a South Florida phenomenon, and if, you know, if heaven forbid we ever start having hurricanes like we did in the 20s and 40s and 60s uh, in South Florida, again, we're going to have a lot of big storms coming in the direction of South Florida, so... You know, a lot of these ideas will be tested. Yeah, there's no, there's no question about that. And, you know, that's where we get into, obviously, you know, host sheltering and, and where do you send people and, you know, the National Guard helping with evacuation and things of that nature. You know, listen, let, let's hope after having Irma and Michael back-to-back, not that Hermine and Matthew, you know, weren't significant events for the areas that got impacted, but, but Irma and Michael were really once-in-a-lifetime events in different ways each other back-to-back in two years. So let's hope we get a little bit of a break so that, you know, obviously our residents uh, 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 can recover uh, and the system could also continue to build uh, capability. Obviously, you can't plan for that. you got to plan uh, every single solitary year, and not just, again, for hurricanes, but for no-notice events. Uh, you know, we're, we're the sixth, we're number six on the list of states that have to deal with tornadoes. Uh, and you obviously don't get as much notice with tornadoes as you do uh, with hurricanes. Uh, and, you know, we, even though we're number six on the list, we're, we don't consider ourselves a tornado state where we have all sorts of tornado warning systems, uh, like some of our states that, you know, are number one or two on the list. So, you know, these are things that we're constantly thinking about and constantly working with our, our local and federal partners on what the response should be. Something that can help with recovery, of course, is taking less damage. And one thing that does that is our building code. Here in South Florida, we have a very strong building code as a result of Category 5 Hurricane Andrew, stronger than the rest of the state, not that the code in most of Florida is terribly weak. But now that we've had a Category 5 hurricane in the panhandle with Michael, is that an indication that the whole state needs to build stronger? And is that a state issue or a local issue? So I I think it is an indication that making our buildings more resilient is something that needs to be a continued effort year after year after year. You know, Michael was a good test case. Uh, in that buildings that were built to a certain code did better than the older buildings before the code. Yeah, right? dramatically no so, yes. Yeah, dra- dramatically so. Yeah. Now, it also depends on whether the building was elevated when you're dealing with, you know, massive amount of surge versus wind damage. Right. Uh, and so, you know, I don't believe you're going to see, nor do we need, a major rewrite of the code. I actually think that 95, 96% of the code works, has been tested, uh, and we're in better shape than a lot of our other, our other you know, fellow states. But I do think you'll see some tinkering, right? Well, again, what were the lessons learned with the code with Irma? What were the lessons learned with the code with Michael? What, what, did, what performed well, which we might want to roll out other places? What didn't perform well? 
right? So I think you'll probably see, at least in my discussions with some of our sister agencies, which really have the, the role of building code, and we've had some preliminary meetings up in the panhandle to talk to builders, home builders, and residents, and folks in the construction industry. I think you're going to see a lot of continued effort on securing roofs to houses better, right? Or, you know, what can we do to make sure that the roofs stay on the buildings? And the reason why that's important is we know when it comes to people being displaced, if the roof is compromised, the house is done. Whether the house gets destroyed or it's done internally because of all the water damage, mold and mildew, which we have to deal with after Florida, you know, we have to look at this in a long-term range planning, which is if we were to make our building slightly more resilient, is that going to save that individual money on their insurance? Is that also going to save the state dollars in the long term? Those are other two components, the financial component, because obviously these cleanups afterwards are significant and extremely costly. Can those costs be mitigated by doing more resiliency on the front end? You know, that's, that's you know, one thing to be looking at and, and trying to figure out what needs to be changed. Obviously, the thing that people continue to talk about is water, right? Water, 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 water. And the majority of the damage I think that we are going to see uh, over the next, you know, several decades from whatever sort of events we have, it's not going to be wind, it's going to be water. And so, you know, mitigating from wind might be is easier than mitigating from water. Obviously, you know, we're not going around and just elevating buildings that currently exist. So what can you do from a resiliency standpoint to deal with flooding? And those are conversations that are going on, and I do think over time you're going to see those things being done. Look, you've got 400,000 people moving to Florida every year from other states, right? So those folks are moving into new houses. Those new houses are built to a, a, a certain code. But what about all the housing that was built before the code, right? You, we, we can't go around and just tell people they're going to have to spend their own dollars upgrading their house because they need to be more resilient. So we're currently continuing to look at, you know, programs, federal programs, state programs that might get created on, on being more resilient. It's something that this governor has focused on, uh, you know, resiliency uh, in general. As you know, he's taking the lead on, you know, all water issues. And this is one of them, obviously. Well, as you said, there are actually multiple different kinds of water threats and hurricanes. Uh, one is the rising water from storm surge, flooding, and, and that kind of thing. And the other is when water gets in the house. If I remember the number, and it's been a long time since Hurricane Andrew, uh, but I would think uh, it was 40% of the insurance paid out was paid out for damage to the inside of people's homes, to furniture and uh, walls and, and things that if the if the envelope of the house had been maintained, they would not have uh, had to pay for you know, new sofas, new televisions, new walls, new cabinets, new flooring, and and so forth and so on. So one of the lessons out of Hurricane Andrew, uh, which led to the the current Miami-Dade uh, building code that's used in, in much of South Florida, was that we have to keep the windows and doors closed no matter how strong the hurricane is. And that's why when you have Miami-Dade certified windows and Miami-Dade certified doors, they can themselves withstand the same kind of wind pressures that the walls and the roofs and everything else have to withstand in South Florida. But in the much of the state, there isn't the same culture of hurricane impact windows, hurricane shutters, and so forth that that we have uh, here. So 
I, I, I don't think that that is as well understood. Do you agree, Jared, that, that in the rest of Florida, the culture of buttoning up your home securely when a hurricane is coming is not as well established, and it is an important part of keeping hurricane damage down? Yeah, I mean, listen, there's no question that there's some element of that, right? Uh, everybody thinks that, you know, it isn't going to happen to them and until it happens, right? So in a way, there was no doubt that Michael was a major wake-up call to the panhandle uh, because they never thought they would have to deal with an event like that, right? And, and every Category 5 storm that's hit the continent of the United States has gone from a tropical storm to a Cat 5 in three days. Mm-hmm. So ma- massive intense uh, uh, in- intensification in a short period of time. Uh, and so uh, I think folks in the panhandle are recognizing that, you know, it can happen anywhere. Uh, and so I think, you know, you're, you're seeing that in, in a lot of that. Mexico Beach uh, has instituted a whole new code. Everything's got to be elevated, right? And everything's got to be built to, you know, thousand-year flood levels. And so you're seeing that, you know, coming into what's going to be replaced in the panhandle. You know, obviously, Brian, before you can mandate things down, you've got to take into account, you know, rural versus urban areas. Right. And you've got to take in socioeconomic statuses. I can, I can, I can, or other divisions of government can mandate all sorts of stuff, but if people can't afford to put it in, and you're not going to have enforcement of that, there's no point of the mandate because it's not going to come into fruition. And so there is a balance and has to be an understanding of of how all this stuff can work together. So there is no doubt that those conversations are taking place. There's no doubt that lessons have been learned. There's no doubt that people want to try to do the right thing and build more resilient affordability is a key component to that. Yeah, we we understand everything that's happened in uh, Panama City, or maybe we don't even understand everything that's happened in Panama City being here in Miami. Uh, it's, uh, it is, is really horrendous. But there is almost zero understanding in Miami of what happened to Mariana, which is inland in Jackson County, if I recall. And uh, they were essentially just wiped out there in this fairly rural county and along I-10, and it's horrible because uh, what attention there was after Michael ends up in, in Panama City. So, yeah, I was talking to folks in from uh, Jackson County who did uh, heroic work after Michael trying to serve their county, but, boy, uh, were they running on less than a shoestring there, Jared. Yeah, well, look, I mean, there was tons of mutual aid that came in from all over the state, uh, from, you know, different cities, different counties, came in to help out, obviously, mm-hmm. with the amount of resources. You're talking about evacuating a hospital that took place, you know, in Bay County. And so, you know, th- this was a monumental effort. And, you know, look, that's some of the frustration with some of the, with the folks in the panhandle, which is, you know, at the end of the day, you know, Puerto Rico got lots of media coverage on what happened there. And what happened in Puerto Rico is devastation that will go down in the history books. But what happened in, in, in the panhandle in Florida is, is almost right there. Uh, and it didn't seem to percolate as much in the media. And the reason why that's important is obviously we all know is the more you shed light on things, uh, the more, uh, more assistance you might get. You know, the private donations right. for Hurricane Michael were less than Hurricane Irma. And I can tell you the devastation of Michael was far greater than the devastation in Irma, not that you ever like to compare two events. Well, and they, the, as you said, they... The socioeconomic ability of, or the economic ability of people to respond on their own in the panhandle is just so much lower than it was in the places in general, just making a general statement that 
that Irma hit, for example. Yeah, there's no question about that. But but listen, these people in the Panhandle are are some of the most resilient people that I've seen. Right? They pick them up by their mm-hmm. bootstraps. You know, they 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 don't ask for much. Uh, and you know, citizens in the state of Florida should be proud that you know help came from all different corners in the state everybody pulled together to help our 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 fellow residents out in the panhandle there is massive amounts of success stories on how all the resources and how all sorts of people deployed people deployed from out of the state into the state of florida not just charities but i'm talking about government employees from different governments different states uh, and we do that all the time. Different mutual aid comes in. Uh, the National Guard's a massive effort uh, in Hurricane Michael with their with their capabilities. And so, you know, again, there's lots of things that worked really well. There's some things that didn't work as you would anticipate. You you and that's why you have these after action reviews. You're constantly improving. Every storm is different. Hits a different area. Hits a different way. Challenges are different. I remember after Wilma, the biggest issue was power. Okay, well, right. power power was restored fairly quickly in the panhandle after Michael. Yes, much more quickly than was anticipated, actually. That's correct. Mm-hmm. The big issue after Michael wasn't power, it was communications. Right. Communications was a failure after Michael, reestablishing comms quickly. And so there are lessons learned there. There are systems that will be improved, and a lot of private industry has taken those steps. And so, you know, each event is slightly different. Look at Hermine. Hermine was a power issue. In, right. in, in Tallahassee. You know, in Tallahassee. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, then here comes Hurricane Michael, and obviously Tallahassee performed much better, even though they were on the periphery, they still performed much better in power restoration Mm -hmm. because of the lessons learned. Uh, And so each event tests kind of everybody differently. There's different lessons that are learned, uh, and then you implement those lessons learned. But, you know, look, uh, you know, the folks in the panhandle are recovering. It's going to take a long period of time to recover from a Category 5 storm. That's no different than, like I said, what happened in South Florida. Um, and it's our job to make sure that we are their advocate, that they have the resources that they need. Uh, and it's actually why you've seen a tremendous amount of state dollars going to the region in multiple ways uh, in this year's budget. Uh, and I imagine you're going to continue to see that in next year's budget so that the Panhandle can rebuild you know, you know, stronger than they were before. All right. All right, Jared Moskowitz, director of the Florida Division of Energy Management, thanks uh, so much for being on the podcast today. Really appreciate it and look forward to seeing you in South Florida soon. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. All right. Take care. You know, at the uh, National Hurricane uh, Conference, I uh, talked to a number of people that either were from the Panhandle, uh, emergency managers in some of those small counties up there, or uh, local emergency managers from South Florida actually went up to help. Mutual aid Uh, kinds of things. And the stories, not just out of Panama City. I mean, Panama City got some coverage, uh, but those small towns north of Panama City got essentially no coverage and uh, and really were on their own, but on their own in the sense that they didn't have national TV coverage or or statewide TV coverage even. But they did have help from uh, emergency managers, but it was a, a daunting issue. Yeah, well, we were there. When was that, Jeff, that we were up there for the... Uh, April? Was that April yeah. for the hurricane special? Yeah, May, so May. what, seven months afterward, yeah. something like that? And the people were telling us, we feel forgotten. Mm-hmm. I mean, locally, it was on the local news. That's all you heard about was hurricane recovery. Uh, but they told us, they're like, we feel forgotten about. You know, a lot of those people were self-insured that we had talked to as well. So 
Um, they lost most everything. But the people that were insured, and th- this is a question I wish I would have asked Jared while we still had them, they were living in homes that were being, and homes, air quotes, homes, they were trailers, uh, that were being paid for by their insurance companies, for those that did have insurance. Mm-hmm. Um, and what they were waiting on is FEMA money to come in. So when they, they have a timeline on their insurance, and the insurance will pay for these trailers up to a certain number of months. And after that, uh, that's done. The insurance payments st- stopped coming in. And the hope is that the FEMA money would come in by then. I, do you know what the state's responsibility is? He says, we, uh, Jared was talking about, you know, we provide resources. If I have lost my home, uh, do those resources, does that mean that they help with cleanup and they provide power? Or do, will they give me money if I've lost my house? No, they, they will give you some money, but but... Uh, They also facilitate loans, but the issue is that the money flows from the federal government, FEMA, through the state to the the local. So the state facilitates the the flow of the money. Mm -hmm. So the state is involved, but the decisions have to be made by FEMA. The money has to be allocated by FEMA. Um, But that is a that the whole issue. We need to get somebody from FEMA on to talk about that because I think it's important for everybody to understand how the system works after a hurricane. Is, is the idea about. that the locals know best how to disperse the funds that, you know, maybe the yes. resources come? Yes. It. I mean, you know, the federal government can't know uh, where you would set up to have most people have access to it in a local community. And you can't even know that until after the storm or maybe you have certain areas scouted out or or whatever things are are generally run locally you know in florida evacuation um, orders for example are handled at the county level but in the northeast where they have something called home rule the evacuation orders are handled at the town level or it can be at the township level depending on how the crazy government systems are, are set up so so essentially the idea is that when you make these sort of fundamental decisions, you need to know your people, know your place, know your sure. needs, you know, know your capabilities. Uh, so that's the idea. What, where it falls apart is where it fell apart in Hurricane uh, Andrew and to some degree in Michael is, uh, although not to the same degree as in Andrew, is when the local government is so overwhelmed because of a variety of things, including physical damage, but also you know, local government or people, right? They're people that administer the government. They're, they're, they're cops, they're firefighters, they're administrators or whatever. Well, they all live in homes or they live in apartments that may or may not be functioning and functional after the storm. They may have families to take care of. So when local government breaks down, like in Homestead, Homestead was the only town government in South Dade after Hurricane Andrew, but they essentially could not function. They didn't have police cars. They didn't have facilities until they got them up and running, which they they finally eventually did. But, uh, you know, they couldn't do that right away. So that's where this system of local first breaks down. And to some degree, that uh, no doubt happened uh, in in a panhandle in areas that just the, the damage and the, the issues that the hurricane brought just overwhelmed the ability of, of the local government to respond as well as they would want to. Yeah. You know, that's just the reality mm. uh, of the system. All right, so uh, that's our podcast for today. And uh, as I said, our next podcast is going to be on Monday, 
August the 5th, we'll have Phil Klotzbach on, and he'll talk about the updated 2019 hurricane season forecast. We'll get his analysis on what's going on in the Pacific or with the weather pattern, the El Nino pattern, and how that might affect uh, hurricanes this year, and also what's going on in the Atlantic and also with all the Saharan dust. We've had nothing but Saharan dust across the uh, tropical Atlantic so far this Keep year. Keep it coming. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, anyway, that'll be a real, real good one on uh, Monday the 5th. So for now, I'm Brian Norcross along with Luke Doris at the WPLG Local 10 podcast studio in Miami. Have a good week, and uh, we'll see you on the 5th of August.